good morning again, everyone. I am happy to see you are able to join us today. Uh, we've definitely had uh, one of those patterns of weather this week where it just can't make up its mind whether it's going to be spring or winter still. Those are always fun times, especially as your flowers start coming up out of the ground. But you know, um, I feel like for a lot of us, there has been very similar turbulence in our lives as well this past week. Now, despite the circumstances, despite the situations that you might be facing, you're here, and that's a blessing as you're around brothers and sisters in Christ to, to praise our Father. You know, as I said last week, um, with the last message, I understand that it was difficult. There was a lot of information that was within that. And the way that we had to leave that after the first complaint and after the Lord's response was meant to help you wrestle. In the similar way that Habakkuk was wrestling as he waited on the Lord. So hopefully you're able to spend some time with the different situations that you're wrestling with this week and take those things to the Lord. You know, as we wrestle with issues of evil, of sin, of wickedness around us. Uh, today, I want to jump right into our passage for the second complaint in Habakkuk. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 1 and read through chapter 2. And we're going to hear that second complaint, the response from the Lord, and then also some corresponding woes that he gives. So, of course, some more difficult things for us today, but hopefully we can continue to gain an insight and understanding as we go through. So we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings, all of them, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly Mercilessly killing nations forever. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers himself for himself all nations and collects all his own or. Sorry, and he collects as his own all peoples. 
Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And, himself, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of the man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that, people, that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the, water, as the waters covers the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drunk, drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision the cup in the lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory the violence done to lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image a teacher of lies for its maker trusts in, its own, in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Father, as we go to your word today, I just pray that you would continue to give us understanding, that you continue to give us wisdom, and that you would continue to teach us to, to go to you as we wrestle uh, through life's issues and circumstances that are difficult for us to understand. And Lord, as we talk about difficult things today, I just pray that you would give us open hearts and minds. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so for last week, as I said, I know it was difficult because it felt kind of like a fire hose. You're getting hit with a lot of different information, and it was hard for you to process. Um, some weeks, that's just kind of the approach and the style that we go by, and I trust that the Lord had put things on your heart that you needed to focus on, um, and that he is helping you wrestle through those things. For this week, we're going to look a little bit more line by line or section by section as we go through this to help us understand what, what's going on. And we'll start with his second complaint or response even to God's response from the first complaint in terms about violence and, in, and just, injustice being done in Judah. So, I mean, even with all of this violence, even with everything that's going on, uh, Habakkuk is showing that he has a good understanding of what the Lord means there in verse 12. He understands um, that, that, you know, everything is certain in his mind that the Israelites will not die, meaning God's not going to wipe them out completely because he still believes in the goodness of God and the promises of God. He knows that 
there's still promises for God's people that need to be upheld, so they're not going to be wiped out completely. Instead, this is going to be a judgment that's going to happen to them. So Habakkuk understands this in verse 12. He understands that Babylon is coming as a reproof for his own people. So I think that's kind of easy for us to see in terms of the initial response, that connection that he has to what the Lord had said. But then you get to 13, and it begins to shift a little bit. Like, he's like, all right, Lord, I'm with you about this whole judgment thing because that's what I'm asking for. But I kind of take issue the fact that you want to use this more wicked people to judge your people. You know, he's taking issue a little bit with why would you have somebody more evil than the people themselves come to judge them? That's the basis for this second complaint. Now, as you read verse 13... Um, it's kind of a familiar line. People use this a lot of times to talk about how God is so pure that he cannot look upon evil, that he's separated from evil, so forth and so on. It's kind of how it's summarized a lot of times. So there's a couple points I want to make about this in terms of some of the errors in teaching that you may have heard over the years. First of all, we don't want to look at this and then treat sin as it's something that's so powerful that it's this kryptonite to God that he can't physically look upon that. Um, This is not used in a literal meaning here. Again, Habakkuk is piggybacking off of his first complaint in terms of wanting judgment for sin, justice, understanding God's holiness to shine forth. Um, So we have to understand this a little bit deeper because when you look at the Bible, you can see all kinds of instances such as in the garden with Adam and Eve after they sin. God doesn't turn his face from them like, oh no, I can't look at you now. He seeks them out. He finds them. He finds Cain and he talks to Cain. You think about Job. Satan comes into the presence of God as he is ordered to. You think of Jesus who is fully man, fully God, coming down into, uh, onto the earth among the wickedness. So it's not like sin is this boogeyman to God or more powerful than God. Habakkuk is... Again, applying to or appealing to God's holiness. That it, why are you tolerating sin? Again, he's wanting justice to come out. So that's kind of how we want to try to understand this verse. Um, you know, ultimately, obviously, uh, God and sin is not going to coexist. God will judge it, but it goes back to his timing, what we've been talking about a little bit with that. So in the same way, you know, that Habakkuk is crying out against this wickedness, we can find ourselves crying out against wickedness that we see around us, wanting that type of judgment to come down, wanting justice for the evil that we see, wanting God's justice to deal with that, understanding that his justice and his holiness are so great. Again, we don't understand sometimes why he would be tolerating the things that happen to us. So again, because God is holy... The question that's raising in the mind of this prophet is, why does it seem like the Lord is looking approvingly at the treachery that is around him? The treachery of the Babylonians, the wickedness of the Babylonians, to the point that he would use them to judge his own people. Why does it seem like the corrupt and the wicked always get ahead, that they always succeed in this life? There are perceived inconsistencies, perhaps, that we deal with, that we struggle with as we go through this life. 
You know, how does a just God allow an evil people to conquer a less evil people? It's a question of why God is not exercising his sovereignty. But it also is a question that plays a little bit into favorites in Habakkuk's mind. You know, even though Habakkuk is acknowledging Judah's wickedness, their violence, their wickedness, it's done in a favoritism type of way. You know, it's like, well, at least they're not as bad as these people. I mean, they're doing bad things, but I mean, they're really bad. Do we ever have similar thoughts when we think about justice? Do we view sin in the same way where we're weighing certain sins heavier than others? You know, Habakkuk is looking at issues of fairness. And he's hardly alone in this line of questioning. You can look to the book of Job, Malachi, Jeremiah, the psalmists. They all have um, verses or sections that deal with fairness. Perhaps we can throw our names into that ring as well as we discuss, as we discuss some of those things in our own lives. And the thought that, you know, they're still good in the sense when they're compared to somebody else. You ever have those feelings by yourself? But let's look at this good, or as in verse 13 says, when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Well, that type of good is still worshiping false idols. They're still making sacrifices in the temple. They're still committing murder, robbing, extorting. They're filled with sexual immorality, anger, and violence. Yet they're still good? Yet they're still more righteous than the Babylonians? See, the question comes from a lack of understanding. To where we can still ask those same types of questions in our lives as we go through our various struggles. Why does this happen to me? I'm a good person. We have this type of reasoning that we have to fight against. But as we talked about last week with Habakkuk, he went to the Lord for understanding. And he's going to do that again in a second. That's where our eyes need to turn. But before that, probably the statement that I think is most like a complaint or even an indictment against God is found in verse 14. Habakkuk understands the sovereignty of God. But he looks at the people who are not being led under God's divine rule or justice, those who are doing all of these wretched things, and he compares them to how the bigger fish swallow up the smaller fish, and how then even bigger fish come up and swallow up those big fish. Why is God not stepping in? Do you ever struggle with that thought? Right? If he is sovereign, if he is just, why would he allow this wickedness to continue? Is he responsible? You know, why would, why would God be allowing the Babylonians to continue throwing their net into the sea to go gobble up all of these other smaller nations? And he asks, would this merciless killing go on forever? But then in verse, or chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will wait patiently for an answer. I will be at my watch post listening for what will be said. So he's seeking the Lord for understanding. He has struggles in his heart and mind. The same way that we wrestle with various things in our own faith, he takes it to the Lord. He goes to the Lord and seeks that understanding. 
You know, oftentimes, when we have this kind of a study, a discussion can arise about evil and the omnipotence of God, the all-power uh, trait of God, his benevolence. And there have been explanations abound, books abound about this subject, trying to explain the struggle between this just almighty God and the clear presence of evil in this world. How do they go together? How do we understand that? So forth and so on. And, and again, people usually summarize the question or the, the discussion with how can a just and loving God allow evil? You know, when we face evil, we all have these types of questions that can come about. But like Habakkuk, have we taken it to him? Have we stood at the watchpost with our perplexities before God concerning evil, concerning injustices? Or do we have our own expectations? Or do we blame him? To me, within this whole issue, the subject of evil and the doctrines and the teachings that go around it, there are definitely some overarching principles that have to remain, that deal with his character, that deal with our place, our position as creations as well. But how that's lived out, how you see that fruit and how it's played out takes a lifetime of seeking him to gain an understanding. Different experiences will change how you view things every now and then. You know, for many, um, I would say through that wrestling, sometimes what's thrown out there is just the phrase, God is sovereign. And for some, that may be all that they need. And that's wonderful. But for others, it may be too convenient of a theology. Because maybe they're going through some deep valleys of evil and injustices that are around them. Maybe they live in war-torn areas when they're ruled by the wicked. And perhaps it's a blessing and a curse to be in America to where we can come on a Sunday and have intellectual discussions in a very peaceful environment about these types of heady type of things and not have to live in those cultural things where we're surrounded by absolute atrocity each and every day. Because the disparities of cultures can be very alarming. And when you're witnessing things firsthand, you have a different outtake of what evil looks like. Sovereignty can be a tricky thing to articulate because very quickly it can get to an understanding of causality in people's minds where God is causing this evil to happen to me. And if we just banter around that God is sovereign as people deal with loss, as they deal with grief, as they deal with struggles and not explain what we mean, it can create feelings of bitterness. It can create barriers in people's lives. So we want to be careful with how we understand it and how we're explaining it to people. You know, even believers that have not wrestled well with this subject can be shaken in their faith. For me, as I continue to struggle, as I continue to wrestle, fighting my own flesh, feelings of fairness and injustices, um, I try to rest in an understanding that God is sovereign. Now, my definition might be a little bit different than others, but I le- believe that the Lord is paramount that he is supreme, that he is independent in his dominion, that he possesses the highest authority. And as Habakkuk alludes to, he is separate from evil. 
So there is no causation with evil. You see, when we mix sovereignty with causality, people can begin to believe that God is the one that caused this evil in my life, and they blame him. This is a type of question that can arise from this passage. As a prophet is wondering why God would use these, this evil and wicked people to judge his people. As I, get, I said again last week, the subject of evil, e- evil is perplexing. Perhaps it's better suited for conversations in terms of getting into some of that nitty-gritty and personal examples. But I will never say that God is responsible for evil. Evil came about because of sin, our sin against a holy and just God. We are culpable. See, the issue of evil is a struggle for both the believer and the non-believer. And while it might be appropriate at times to ask questions that seem to elude us that are mysterious, we have to be careful in not demanding an answer that fits our expectations, what we're already looking for, things that we presuppose. Like Habakkuk, we can desire a world in which justice is quickly dispersed, where a justice system is honorable and noble, Um, but, you know, we have things going against us in that realm. You know, we watch television shows like Law and Order or Perry Mason, and we're accustomed to having justice done in about an hour. (laughs) You know, justice is done. It's immediate. It's quick. We're trained by television, by movies, that this is the type of justice that we should be expecting. But at times when we don't experience that justice immediately, when we're overtaken by those fantasies, we get shaken in our faith. Because secretly, we sit paramount. Secretly, we sit as the judge, and we know what is to be fair. And ironically, when you think about that, whatever's fair is, well, that's my side. It's what I wanted. So, of course, it's just. Of course, it's right. I come out ahead in every scenario. Now, while this might satisfy our human desires, very rarely does God play into that type of justice. So we have to be aware of our own ideas of fairness. Ecclesiastes 3.16 says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, for somebody who would be a non-believer, their thoughts on a verse like this could be that they expect our justice system to be fair, to be righteous, and to disperse only justice. If they don't, they would demand vindication presently. Whereas for a believer, although the desire is still there for a just system, for it to be honorable, they don't expect that always to be the case because we understand that we live in a fallen and broken world. Instead, we lean on the promises of God because only he can be true, only he can be just, and that he will vindicate in his time. Now, we've had discussions about, we could have discussions about evil and sovereignty for hours, Um, It is a very, very deep and complex subject, especially as you get into the nitty-gritty of people's lives. But I at least just want to at least touch on the subject because this is kind of behind Habakkuk's question here. And it's one that we want to wrestle with as well. But I want to move on to God's response for now, for today. And here it's pretty simple. You know, when you look at God's response, he basically says, 
that his judgment will come at the appointed time. If it seems slow, wait. And this wait is not let's just sit by the window and just watch it happen. This waiting is a continue to have faith. It is a walk in faithfulness with God and understand that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. Those who see these tablets, his words, they run by them. Judgment will happen, you know, even if it's not in your lifetime. You look at Habakkuk here, he's giving this oracle, he's given this vision, um, but he's not going to see the fruition of this. He's going to die long before Babylon comes to, his, comes to its judgment. You know, those that are in right standing with God, those who are righteous will walk by faith, unlike those who are puffed up in their own eyes. So, you know, though God's ways are mysterious at times, the righteous shall live by faith while they're awaiting salvation. This is a phrase that is quoted a few times in the New Testament. Um, it's something that is central to the theme of the book of Habakkuk, that the righteous will live by faith. It's a summary of the biblical discussion of justification by faith, something that started way back in Abraham in chapter 15. Uh, it's picked up in Hebrews chapter 11 with the hall of faith in terms of the heroes uh, from the Old Testament that have faith. So this thought is so central to the Jewish train of thought. I found this quote um, this week. It was pretty cool. The Talmud records a famous remark by Rabbi Simlai. He said, Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. David reduced them to 11 in Psalm 15. Micah to 3 in Micah 6, 8. Isaiah to 2 in 56, 1 but Habakkuk to one, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, it kind of goes in line with what we talked about in Sunday school today in terms of Jesus' commands that he gives. You know, in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love others as yourself. He sums up what the Old Testament says in that verse. Habakkuk is summing up centrality in a, in a believer's life by saying that the righteous will, li will live by faith. Now when we take this phrase and this teaching and we think about Habakkuk's question, you know, why should the less evil or the wicked Judeans die while the more arrogant and the evil ba Babylonians conquer them and live? I like how it says the righteous will live by faith because really God's kind of saying, look, just because you're a mouth breather doesn't mean you're really living. The righteous are the ones that are living because they're living for me. You know, so he's connecting this understanding of what it means to be in him. So this term of, the terms of fairness, the terms of the judgment coming, even those in Judah, they're not really living because they're not living for God. They're, they're worshiping false idols. They're doing all of these other things. They're not protected by the judgment that's coming because they're away from the Father. Their greed, their evil, their sin, it's bringing them death. And that's what sin does. It destroys. It tears apart. It separates us from God. Now, to fully appreciate verse 5 there in chapter 2, how wine is a traitor, we have to know a little bit more history. And for that, we're going to go over to the book of Daniel, if you want to turn over there in chapter 5. <clears throat>
Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read the first six verses. You can, you can read the rest of the chapter this week if you want, if you have time. But beginning in verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. See, their arrogance, their greed to want more is going to be their downfall. Their lust is going to continue to grow as a nation. They will continue to conquer nations. They will continue to take captives. Blood is going to continue to be on their hands. And all for what? You know, what, what, would you, uh, what does a man exchange for his soul? You know, the old tagline, what would you do for a Klondike bar? You know, you think about what they are trading, what they are doing in order to puff themselves up even more, to be more arrogant, to take what was not theirs and to desecrate it in the ways that they do. It's a startling perspective to contrast those that are puffing themselves up versus those that are living by faith. You know, Paul tells us that if our end goal is this world, if it's this life, then we're fools. You know, as believers, we live for the life with Christ. We live for paradise. And we walk this life following the commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our life should be about seeking him, standing on the watch posts, looking for that narrow path, not following the world into this broad road of destruction. The Lord then goes on and he gives uh, five different woes for the Babylonians. But it's also a warning for all of those who might fall prey to these types of attitudes. It's a warning for dictators, for tyrants, for presidents, for anybody that has authority over others of how they need to take things seriously, how they need to approach different things in life. Verse six through eight deal with the woe of excessive greed and exploitation. Those who are constantly wanting more, those who have excessive debts that are going to be owed. Blood that has been taken will be owed against them. They would suffer the same punishment that they had inflicted on the other nations. The second woe in nine through 11 is one of a hunger to dominate, to exalt themselves. It's a passion to stay on top, to control everything within their power, to build a dynasty that is all about them. And it shows covetousness, where you are so secure in what you're trusting in, in terms of yourself. And what you build is done so by taking unjustly from others. So much so that the rocks that you tear down from other temples to put in your own will cry out against you. The third woe is one of oppression. The atrocities that were done to the people in verses 12 through 14. Now this kind of builds off of the last woe 
a little bit, um, and it shows how when a town or a dynasty is built from the blood, sweat, and tears of, and the lives of others that you've subjected, subjugated, that you've taken captive, that you will be judged by God. Whether that's Nebuchadnezzar, whether that's Hitler, whether that's uh, Saddam Hussein. You know, you think of, of the phrase blood money today. You know, what, what, is it, what has been paid for the goods that you have? What has been sacrificed for what you have? You know, you think of this, the nation Babylon. You know, and it has a lot of significance in terms of the Bible. You go all the way back in Genesis and the Tower of Babel. You go to Revelation and Babylon there and everything in between. Babylon is set up as the name that is against God, that is for self, that is for elevating a humanistic understanding and model in life where we are worshiping ourselves, where we are worshiping false things, and we're not worshiping God. Symbolically, we see that all throughout Scripture, those who reject God. Uh, people always think that their ways are best, that their glory is mandated. However, it is only for the glory of God that is what is going to fill the earth. And we see that really come out in this section as well, kind of in the middle, if you will, um, in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, when you're building a dynasty, it's all about you. It's all about your strength. It's all about your, your power. You can look throughout history at all of the dynasties. They were arrogant. They thought of themselves. But in the end, God assures us that the, the earth is going to be filled with his glory and his alone. The fourth woe speaks to debauchery, the drunken inappropriateness. Now, of course, drunkenness allows for inhibitions to be relaxed, for people to be taken advantage of. We see a lot of different scripture teachings about drunkenness. We, see, we go back to Noah and Ham and the issue of drunkenness and shame that was revealed there. And the Babylonians, as they invaded other nations, they would strip all the things of value from the people. They would take everything away from them, and then they would get them drunk so that they can have their own entertainment, that they could have... Um, you know, more wicked interests being indulged in. Now, as it talks about in terms of drinking of the cup, you know, obviously we want to see how that is the cup of wrath that is going to be poured out upon them eventually as it's going to come from the Lord. Um, and you look at verse 16. It's a very descriptive verse, one that taunts the Babylonians to show their uncircumcision. And I think that this is kind of a, a literal and a symbolic meaning to where that they're going to be so drunk in their own power that they're going to be shamed. And when you think of uncircumcision, you also have to relate that to uncircumcision is unclean. It is Gentiles. It is those that have rejected the Lord. So again, it shows them where their place is compared to holy and just God. And then the final woe is one of idolatry, verses 18 and 19. Here they're appealing to mute statues of metal, stone, and wood. These are lifeless objects that they would look to for guidance. You know, people become like what they worship. If you worship things, they're lifeless, cheap, worthless. Whereas a believer worships God, the giver of life, the giver of worth, the giver of power and might. And we are becoming like Christ through the Holy Spirit. 
You know, idolatry is a way of folly. And sadly, many things that we have in our lives today, we can idolize. Whenever a person, whenever a person's desire is for the, the creation rather than the creator, we're guilty of the same type of foolishness. I mean, it's nice to have beautiful things, but it's entirely different to be owned by them. It's a warning that spans the generations. There is only one God. There's only one name under the heavens that a man can be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. Verse 20 really sets this in order. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You know, all the clamor, all the noise about how great we might be, the biggest, the greatest, the newest achievements, the shiny things that we pay attention to that are grabbing our attention, all of that will be silenced. The evil of the world will be judged. And that should give us hope. Because honestly, when we, when we contemplate all the things that we have going on in our lives, there's difficulties and there's hardships and there's struggles galore. And it's overwhelming. But our hope can only be found in Christ. If we're placing our hope in other things, then it's misplaced. Life can be treacherous. It can be difficult. And we can want to throw in the towel at times where the hardships dominate our hearts and minds. And to be honest, it's easier to go the way of the world, to go with the way that the stream is flowing, but wide and, road, but wide and broad is that road that leads to destruction. The other alternative is that we can stand firm and rest in the grace that we have received from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't take the troubles away, doesn't take the hardships away. But what it does is it anchors us through the storms. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth keep silent before him. He is the one that we go to with our struggles. He is the bringer of life and joy. He is the rock that is our foundation and our hope in the storms. Righteous people live and they live abundantly because they've been been declared justified in that they have put their trust and faith in him and him alone. Is it any wonder that this verse in Habakkuk 2 became the rallying cry of the Reformation? I pray that it is the rallying cry of the church today to continue to cry out, how long, O Lord, as we righteously live by faith? You know, when we understand fully the grace that we have received, it does bring joy to our hearts to our minds and that joy can be taken to our hard situations the difficult things that we face in life can drain us they can be exhausting we struggle in our own power we fail to make good decisions and right decisions we need to learn what it means to rely on the Lord and to be content with him when we bring our own sense of fairness and justice into the mix we're in error if we haven't seen it yet, wait. If you don't understand it yet, seek him. Like I said, it's a lifetime of wrestling. There are questions that I will ask the Lord in my foolishness that I have because I don't understand. I could sit all day and say that things aren't fair. I could sit all day and say, got a bad hand at life. 
but that would be missing the joys, that would be missing the blessings along the way because of one thing. You know, when you think about the struggles that you have, they can very easily dominate your heart and mind. How much better is it to think of the joy that you have because of the grace that's been received and let that dictate your thoughts and your actions? That no matter what storms come, you are held firm because you are in his hands. Not the world's, not your own, but his. He defeated evil. He defeated sin. Me, I still struggle. I still fail. I'm not strong enough. But I know the one who is. I put my life in his hands to guide me. So we need to continually go before him and be in his word, continually being on our watchtower and our post to look for him because he is good and he is God. He is just. If it seems slow, wait. For the earth will be filled with his glory in his appointed time. Now today, obviously, I know that there's been a lot of hardships and struggles this week. As you're going through different things, if you would like prayer, please seek out a brother or sister in Christ. Seek out me or an elder, and we can use the side rooms if you need privacy, and we can pray. Because you're not alone in all this. Life is hard. Life is exhausting. But it's also joyful. It is also full of hope because of what we have to live on to. I look forward to that, even through the hardships and the trials. So if you need prayer, please ask. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate your word and just deal with the issues of evil, as we deal with the issues of cancer yet again in this body, Lord, we know that your grace is sufficient to hold us through through our fears, through our worries and anxieties. Uh, Lord, that ultimately, if we're living for this life, we're missing the point. Lord, this life is a blessing that you have given us, but it has been given with a purpose, to glorify and magnify you in all things. Uh, Lord, even through loss, even through death, you can be glorified. Even when we don't understand Lord, I pray that you would put us in positions where we can be broken before you. That we can throw off our own injustices and fairness ideas and where we sit on the throne. But Lord, that we can understand that, that you are on the throne because of what you have done for us. Lord, you have done what we could not in terms of keeping the law and then you sacrificed your perfection to pay for our sins we cannot even fathom that kind of love. So Lord, as we walk through this life, I pray that we can walk righteously, that we can walk in faith, holding on to who you are and what you have done. Walking with faith that you will complete what you said that you would. And Lord, as we go about our week, you will give us opportunities to share that faith. I pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. I pray that you would give us the words to use.
Lord, give us a heart and a passion for your truth and your word as we wrestle with hard and difficult subjects. Continue to grow us into the image of your son. And may you get all of the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.